Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We do want to do it all, and we want to be a great mum, and we want to be a great co-worker and a great boss, and you can't do it all. It's impossible to do it all. And so if you have help and you have good help along the way and you're not afraid to ask for it, it makes everything so much easier. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to bring you fascinating stories from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. Our aim is to uncover the human behind the success story to show that these women aren't so different from you or I. They're achieving great things despite their doubts, fears and tough times. Don't forget to look out for our special how-to episodes as well. This is where Claire and I unpick some of the common career pain point themes our guests have raised. Now to this week's show. Hi, everyone. This week's episode is with a woman who has an uncanny eye for picking unicorns when they're still fledgling businesses. I'm speaking about Kate Vale. She's a highly regarded leader and pioneer in the technology and media sectors in Australia. Kate was employee number one at Google Australia. Can you believe it? And built the business there from one employee to hundreds, including you, Claire. Indeed, she did. Kate then went on to build the YouTube business in Australia. Kate has a real talent for building and growing high-performing teams in the digital space, and we think she's a fantastic role model for any of you out there who want a big job and a family. In 2011, her unicorn radar went off again, and so she joined Spotify, the digital music service, before most of us had even heard of music streaming. She launched and established Spotify as a hugely successful brand in Australia. In this episode, Kate shares with us how terrifying yet exhilarating it was to be Google Australia's first employee, why asking for help is a key success factor, how she bounced back from adversity, and her strategies for feeling strong and confident. Kate spoke to us from LA, where she's now based with her husband and two children. Enjoy our conversation with the wonderful and inspiring Kate Vale. Kate, thank you so much for joining the Don't Stop Us Now podcast and welcome. Thank you. So great to be here. So Kate, you've had an illustrious career having uh, joined not one, but two incredible companies that have gone from being pretty small when you've joined to being incredible brands that we all know and love, and that's Google and Spotify. So today we're super excited to be able to sort of delve into your career, but also just to learn about you and how you've made decisions in this journey that you've been on. Before we really get into the depth, just for our listeners' sake, I wanted to just ask you a question that could be relatively difficult to answer, or it might not be, which is how would you describe what you do? 
Well, it's funny that you say that it could be difficult because it is difficult right now because I'm not doing what I normally do. So first and foremost, we relocated our family over to LA about two years ago. So a big change for me professionally and a big change for the family, but we're settling in well. And that's from Sydney in Australia, yeah? That's right. But right now, I'm a mum who has time to spend with her family which I'm so incredibly grateful for. But I'm also lucky to sit on two fantastic boards in Australia, a non-executive director for Tourism Australia and Tourism Tasmania. I advise for a small music startup and we're currently seeking green card in the US for our family so we can stay here a bit longer. Gosh, so it really is quite a transition phase for you. It is a transition phase. It's very, very different to what I usually do. I'm usually... I'm very hands-on as a mum, but I, I've also had my full-time work, which has kept me incredibly busy. And and to be frank about it, I haven't, over the past sort of 10 years, had a lot of time to spend with my family. So I'm making the most of that opportunity, being with them, being with my husband, who's also doing stuff in the startup world over here, and doing things that I wouldn't have ordinarily been able to do when I was working full-time, whether that's picking the kids up from school, going to their plays, taking them to play dates, meeting other mums. It's quite foreign to me, but I'm enjoying it at the moment. I don't know how much longer I can do this for full-time before I get back into the workforce, but I'm enjoying it at the moment. That's fantastic. What a wonderful place to be able to be to have that time. Not that, you know... As a full-time working mum, you know, that's one of the the challenges, isn't it? To not be able to have that special time with your kids. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, take me back to my full-time work. That was one of the biggest challenges was trying to make that work-life balance, trying to be a fantastic mum. And I'm, I'm passionate about my family, but also being a good boss and a good leader, a good peer. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you actually balance those two, three things? It was a decision that I made pretty much as soon as I had children, to be honest, that I wanted to be a mum and I wanted to be a good mum. I knew I was a great leader. I knew I could work and I was always going to be good at that, but I wanted to prove to myself that I could be a good mum. So I always had a mantra of family first and I displayed that whenever I could in my work environment, that family came first. If it was a decision to make between my family and work, family was always number one whether that was something as simple as ensuring that I walked out the door every night at 5pm, which I did, and I wasn't ashamed of that. And I would also like to think that I I was a good role model for other mums and dads in the workforce and showing them that you can have a great career and you can have a a nice work-life balance. Kate, that's fantastic. What what are your sort of top tips for juggling high-powered leadership roles and a full-on family life too? It's interesting. There's been so many challenges along the way, but I would say the ability to have and ask for help when you need it is number one. So whether that's your peers at work asking for their help to be a little bit more flexible when you need to make a decision to go home at lunchtime because your child's sick or it might be ringing your mum or your dad to come and help when someone can't show up to look after the kids or pick them up after school. Or in my position, and I'm very fortunate to have had nannies my entire working career, and good help is everything and investing in good help is everything so that I can focus on work and I can travel to Europe or to the US from Australia at the drop of a hat if I need to. And and good help is 
so important. And I think that I've been very, very lucky to depend on that, rely on it along the journey. But I've also managed to work for great companies that support that work-life balance. And I have been very upfront about the fact that I put family first and they've been very supportive of me doing that. I, I think it'd be very, very difficult to work for a company that doesn't doesn't support it. Yeah. So it sounds like you've just made that an absolute priority for you that has driven who you work for and how you operate. And I love the asking for help point as well. I think that's such a classic female failing sometimes that we don't always reach out. We think we need to be able to do it all ourselves. That's so important. Yeah, Greta, you're so right because we do want to do it all and we want to be a great mum and we want to be a great co-worker and a great boss. And you can't do it all. It's impossible to do it all. And so if you have help and you have good help along the way and you're not afraid to ask for it, it makes everything so much easier. So going back to your childhood, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I thought that I was going to follow in the footsteps of my aunt, to be honest. She was in human resources in a law firm. And so that's kind of what I aspired to do. And I finished university. I did a Bachelor of Business in Management at Monash University in Melbourne. And I went and got a, a gig in a, in a human resources team in a law firm in Melbourne. And I did that for about a year and a half. And it just was not me. I don't know what I was thinking. I obviously didn't really think it through too much or didn't go and do any work experience in the area because it really wasn't me. And as much as I loved the people component of working in human resources, the administrative side of it just wasn't for me. Right. So it was the administration. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Claire. You know me. I do. You work with me. I do. I have. <laughs> In fact, yes. in fact, Kate, I, you know, we'll get this out front and foremost. You know, I think you actually hired me into Google. Yes. So I, I know you pretty well. What a well. great hire. What a great hire. Fantastic hire. <laughs> One of your best. So you were in, basically, so you were in this HR company. You were following yep. in the footsteps of your aunt, you know, literally cookie cutter. And then yes. you realized that it was just not for you. So how did you then make the transition into media and technology? Interesting. So I was very fortunate actually in the law firm to have a a general manager who really respected me and we were very honest about my transition out of the role. (laughs) I think he was the one that suggested to me that I should move on and I completely agreed with him. And he gave me the time and advice to go and look for something that I thought would be suitable. In my time at the law firm, time and time I heard people say, you should be in sales, you'd be great, you'd be a great seller. I was like, oh gosh, how can I apply my HR skills to sales? And that's really all I know at this point in time and I'm fresh out of university. There was a gig that came up in Melbourne for a company called TMP Worldwide who had just bought Monster.com and that was in about 1996, testing my memory. And I went for the role and essentially they were looking for people with HR experience who understood how to sell into recruitment agencies. And I'd worked with recruitment agencies a lot in my time in human resources. So I was lucky enough to to get the role and I worked on Monster.com in its infancy in Australia, but there was not a lot going on in Melbourne. So they offered me a role in Sydney. As like a, I think it was like a national account manager or something. And I took the opportunity, thought I was going to be in Sydney for a year and a half, you know, cried to my mum as I walked out the door, drove off and said, I'll see you in two years. That didn't happen. I never came back. But the best thing was that Sydney was a place to be in those days and probably still is for 
for gigs in technology and for digital and digital was just taking off. It was prior to the dot-com crash in 2000. And I wasn't in the role for very long actually until my role was made redundant. It happened a lot back then in pre-dot-com bust. And I managed to find a role at Mail, which was at that point in time Australia's second largest ISP in their media sales team. So I went across there. I was there for a few years and absolutely loved it. I was thriving in that environment and decided that that was really for me. I was doing incredibly well in sales. I was consistently the number one salesperson. I got poached to go and work at a company called LookSmart, which was back then Australia's only way of searching the web. So it was a, a startup, a Melbourne startup, you know, internet search engine, and then the dot-com bust happened, but search was still taking off. There were still marketers investing in search because it was giving them a, an ROI or a return inv- on investment. I was there for a couple of years doing really well, was leading their sales team there, and then uh, was at my desk one afternoon and there was a, a call from the guy that ran international growth at, at Google asking me if I would pop on a plane two days later and head over there for an interview. The rest is history there. I got the job and was fortunate enough to be – Australia's first Google employee and start the office in Australia and, and leading the team there. So there you are. You're in one of Australia's most well-known companies, LookSmart. We've had the dot-com crash and some company that you may or may not have heard of has, has asked, offered you a job. What, what did you think of Google back then? Because, of course, it hadn't even listed. And what made you kind of make the jump? Mm, so when I joined Google, it was in 2002, it was a very small company, less than 500 employees around the world. So when I went over for the interview, I think there was like 300 employees in Mountain View in one little building. And Claire, as you would know, the Googleplex now is enormous. It's huge. I'm finding it hard to actually even imagine, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I spent 10 hours in interviews and met pretty much everyone across the business and they're people that are quite famous in the business now and a lot of them are still there. I guess I knew because I worked in the search environment in Australia that Google was going to be incredibly successful. A lot of us had just started using Google in the office and were just blown away by the accuracy of its search results and how they were monetizing their search. And it was the dream job for me. But if I said to my mom or my dad or even someone who worked outside of technology or even outside of search that I was going to work for a company called Google, it was like, goo what? <laughs> you know, I remember people even ringing the office in the early days thinking we were Dodo, the little local ISP. No one had heard of Google. I didn't even know that existed. So even though I knew I was on a good thing, people around me had no idea. Of course, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And and yes, it was slightly risky because being first employee for an, a big international company in a small country, there were some risks associated to that. But I was so, so excited. I can't believe how elated I was when I got that that role. That's amazing. And what about though, because I imagine this is the first time that you were going to be running the show, you know, not only were you employee number one, but clearly they wanted you to have more employees quite quickly. So how did you feel, you know, was that exciting? Was that kind of part terrifying as well, knowing you were going to be uh, running the show? Yeah. I mean, it was very terrifying. And 
I think if I look back now, I, I was so confident and I would not let them know that I was terrified at, at all. And I think about some of the things that I used to do and Claire, you and I have spoken about this, you know, even going to speak to the media for the first time when they were interviewing me on Google's launch in Australia, I'd never spoken to the media before. So there were things like that that were that absolutely terrified me, but I was extremely confident that I could do it and I did it. But I also asked for help along the way. So there were some amazing PR people at Google in the early days who actually made come to Australia during the launch so they could coach me through it all. But as far as growing the office, I knew that was something that I was completely capable of because of my HR experience and my recruiting background. I spent years in a, in a law firm hiring people, recruiting people, making recruiting and hiring policies, and was in charge of the graduate recruitment program, so hiring millennials, essentially. So I knew I could do that, and I knew I could build the office, and I knew I could build a culture but there were things like speaking to the media and and even to some extent like managing finance and P&L, that kind of stuff I had no experience in, terrified me somewhat. But it was the best experience for me. And, and as I said, just using help along the way and asking for help for people in the business really was beneficial to me. So you had no doubts when they offered you the position about taking it or not? No, oh, no doubts. No. Straight away said yes. <laughs> So, you know, talking about speaking to the press and the the fear that goes underneath that, what are your techniques, tips, tools that help you work through that fear? I mean, it's even with public speaking, I guess it's just practice and experience makes perfect. I mean, I'm still not really comfortable getting up in front of a crowd, but if I look back to the early days at Google versus where I am now, it's, I mean, it's completely different. I'd have to get up with speaking notes and I was terrified. Whereas now I can get up and I learn my notes. I learn the presentation and I'm comfortable with the content so I can just get up and talk about it. I just think that practice does make perfect and putting yourself out there. I I remember just saying yes to every opportunity that we got to speak in public back then so I could just practice, practice, practice. Gosh, I would hate to look back on any video footage of me public speaking in the early days. What do you actually tell yourself when you're doing that? That I can do it. The other thing is, I and I, I've said this to people a lot over my career, is that you always know more than the audience. And so you should have the confidence to speak to the audience about something that you know more about them. I just believe that if you're confident with your content, then you should be confident to deliver it. I'd love to take you, Kate, now to sort of think about sort of some of the the more post-Google parts of your career, because if anyone was a betting person, they'd say, gee, that Kate Vale has an eye for the winners, because not only were you employee number one at Google in Australia and New Zealand and grew the business to hundreds of people, but then if I'm not mistaken, you joined Spotify before it existed in Australia and was still a really young company globally and fairly unproven too. Talk us through, um, you know, what you thought about that opportunity when it came along and what made you choose that winner? So I was actually pretty lucky that one of Google's first advertisers in the UK I'd become quite friendly with, a great guy called Shaq. He actually met up with us in our Google conference in China and I remained quite friendly with him. And he got involved and was an early investor in Spotify. 
and he emailed me over an account years before Spotify even existed in Australia. And I remember saying to him, if Spotify ever launches in Australia, please let me know because I thought the product was so fantastic and I'm a huge music lover. And then they hired a guy, Dan Brody, who is also a former Googler to run all of Asia Pacific. And he just reached out to me when they were thinking of launching in Australia and asked me if I'd be interested to interview. And I immediately said yes, went straight into it. And that was 2011, I think, at the end of 2011. So again, if you're looking at the stage of the company, Spotify was less than 500 employees around the world, didn't even exist in Asia Pacific. So very, very similar in terms of growth and, and where the company was that Google was when I joined them. Amazing, amazing. What did you do differently in the actual market to be able to stand out? I'll give you an example of what we did at Spotify. We used to try and be the country that we would test new products in. And the reason that we did that is because we thought we were small enough that if you tested something, it might go unnoticed, but big enough impact on the revenue to understand if we did make changes or we did do product changes, that it would make an impact on other markets around the world, particularly given Australia was so similar in in terms of culture to the bigger European and, and American markets. And that was an amazing opportunity for my team to be able to work on innovation and new products in market that could potentially roll out to the rest of the world. And we were a case study. I'm really quite curious about how you think differently when you you start in an organization like Google or Spotify and you're really small, let's say, you know, it's you and a few key hires to when you become something bigger, you know, at Google, I think, you know, it was a couple of hundred you were leading. I don't know how many it was at Spotify, but what do you have to do differently between those stages? It changes so much. As a company grows, things just do change. I think early on, it's really easy to go under the radar. It's really easy to make mistakes and not be seen. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think also culture changes. Very early on, it's you've got a small team, you need to keep people engaged. So, I mean, I was one for always pushing fun and happiness in the the workplace and always team bonding and going out together and getting to know each other. In a small team that's growing such an enormous business, we're all overworked. And so it was really important that people enjoyed coming to the office and enjoyed their job. But then as the business grows and you get more resource on board and I guess when you become a public company, it's all about process and it's all about procedure. And I guess sometimes that even changes the people you hire, making sure that those people are okay with process and procedure and they're good at that. Quite often early on, you hire people who are creative and strategic thinkers and innovative And then later on, as you become a bigger company, you need to hire people that cross the T's and dot the I's. And I think sometimes that can change the workforce because you are hiring different sorts of people along the way. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I I saw that myself at Google going from 80 to over 1,000, I think, when I left. Yeah. If you think about those those transitions, I guess, is that something that you think you're conscious of or is that just something that – you know, you manage as you go, you sort of feel as you go. I'm incredibly conscious of it. Yeah. You can just feel with the pressure that you get from headquarters that things are starting to change and you need to change gear as a leader. So if you had any advice, because, you know, you've you've spent your career really in fast moving entrepreneurial 
companies and taking punts, you know, real risks on small companies, small companies in the beginning anyway. What would your advice be to somebody who's thinking of taking, you know, a big leap from the corporate world into the entrepreneurial startup space? Understanding the sort of person you are and the sort of person you want to surround yourself with, I think is really important. I've got a friend who's living with me at the moment, actually, who's doing exactly this, going from the world of media into her own business. And we talk about this all the time, that she is now really picky about the people that she's hiring and and actually her business partner, but also her partners. So she's got people pitching for her work. And rather than choosing people that she thinks are potentially better at doing a job, she's picking people that she wants to hang out with and that she thinks believes in her product and will be a better support to her along the way rather than someone who actually could do a better or more kick-ass job, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's right. I mean, the people are absolutely critical, aren't they? They, they surely are, yeah. You're happy if you surround yourself with like-minded people. So if people are one consideration for anyone who's considering leaping from corporate to startup kind of world, are there any other key things they should think about? Well, I just think if you've been let down or things don't go your way, particularly in the world of entrepreneurship, don't linger on it. You have to move quickly. And I think even if I look back at my career and if I've been let down before, I have lingered too long and worried about things for too long. You just need to get up and keep moving. What sort of questions or things do you say to yourself to keep your own momentum moving forward in that kind of scenario? I will always go back. If I've been let down before, I'll always go back later on and think about why it happened so I don't make the same mistake again. Or sometimes things happen for a reason and you have to be accepting of that. But there's nothing worse than feeling battered and bruised But there's a lot to be said about feeling strong and moving to the next option. But I've just learned, I guess, later on in my life that you just need to remain positive and and know that you're actually, you're doing good, you're doing well, and to keep going, be strong. Then thinking about that kind of scenario with a bit of a gender lens, you've worked in some really male industries, music, advertising. I think it's probably fair to say they're they're sort of quite male-oriented industries. Do you think that's a fair call? Yeah, absolutely. So what challenges do you think you faced in those industries being a woman? It was definitely challenging at times, and I hate to say it, but particularly in Australia. I was lucky that I was working for companies that support diversity and support women. I don't know what my challenges were as such, but I guess just ensuring that I always got a seat at the table, that I always had a voice. And I think I mentioned early on, sometimes you have to be a little bit aggressive. And sometimes as females, we're scared to be aggressive. You never talk about the aggressive male, do we? We always talk about the aggressive female. Strange. Absolutely. The double standards and the the double binds as, uh, you know, Lean In um, and Sheryl Sandberg call it very much play out, you know, the bossy woman versus the authoritative expert guy or, you know, there's that great study, you know, with Howard and Heidi, uh, the Harvard business case study where the whole business case was exactly the same bar for a name change and um, the students rated the female Heidi uh, much more poorly on likability and also for memory for on effectiveness as well. 
Yeah. That sort of brings us to the gender narrative today. You know, it's pretty topical right now about, you know, whether it's lack of women in STEM or the Me Too and Time's Up kind of scenarios. Is there anything that frustrating you about the current gender narrative? A little bit because everyone seems to think that we've come such a long way and I don't really see that. Still think we've got such a long way to go, but I think women need to be more positive about their position in the workplace. You know, we are naturally empathetic, we're patient, we listen, we have intuition, we have higher emotional intelligence, and that leads to a healthier workplace. And we need to be more confident about our position in the workplace and the contribution we can make. Yeah, the contribution we can make because we certainly do. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a an eight-year-old daughter and I wonder about what life will be like for her in the workforce as she grows up and I truly hope it changes and it's different for her. I really do. I think one of the best things that we're doing now is we're making sure that young girls have great female role models, which I don't think we really had much when we were growing up. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast is to to show really great role models like yourself. There you go, snap. There you go. And so, Kate, you've been on this journey. What have you learned about yourself? That I'm really tough, (laughs) that I'm good at what I do. I think after I I left Google, I was, I don't know, maybe the wind was taken out of my sails. I'd I'd left just after I had babies. I, I didn't know what how valuable my contribution was. And then I was so lucky to get the role at Spotify and see my confidence build up again and to be able to do it all over again and prove to myself that I could do it all over again. And that also if you put something out there and you really, really want something really badly, then you can get it. Brilliant. You you sound like you're really, you're, you're really in a place where you feel strong and confident going forward. I'm lucky at the moment because I have time and this time has been important not only because I get time to spend with my family but I've been able to focus on me for the first time. My health, my mental state, be able to think about where I want to go, what I want to do, it's such a nice place to be in. Yeah, so you're taking that time out and getting up on the balconies, what I call it, and actually sort of really yep. looking at yourself and yes. recognising how, how much you've got and how much you've achieved. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's awesome. And if you could think back to your 30-year-old self, say, what would be the advice or words you would give them from the benefit of the position you sit in today? Without sort of going over what we've already been over, but the best piece of advice is if you've been let down, get up and keep moving. Don't linger on it. Move quick. That would be the best advice that I could give myself because I've seen myself do it over and over again in my career. And what about if the person feels like, It's not that they've been let down, but they've totally screwed up. They aren't good enough. Because I think a lot of people, myself included, often think, you know, we have our own failings that can sometimes bring about things that don't go as well as they should. What would you say to to them then in that situation? Well, I think it's about learning why those things happened. Why did you not succeed and learn from it and move on? But again, just not spending too much time on it. Time is so precious, particularly as females in our career. We spend a lot of time out if we're a mother and sometimes you just don't have time to linger on those sorts of things. You need to move quickly. 
that sounds so healthy to be able to do that because, yeah, we just classically women, the research shows we, we have a tendency to ruminate more. So great advice. Yeah. Kate, we can't thank you enough. It's been such a great conversation today. Is there any place people can go to find out more about you or to connect or any last words you would like to leave us with? Thank you so much for this, Claire and Greta. It's been amazing to go over my career and think about what what I've done and to bring it all up again. It's been a while since I've actually had to do any work commitments, even though this isn't really work. It's been really nice to have this chat. I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Vale, so it's pretty easy and you can connect with me there. But also I'm very happy to give out my my personal email address. It's just kate.vale at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has reinforced the idea that making great and new things happen is all about taking action despite doubts, fears, or tough times. Don't forget, links and other useful info from today's show can be found at our website, don'tstopusnow.co. And if you've enjoyed and been inspired today, our request to you is please subscribe. And if you could make today the day that you take two minutes to rate and review this show, we will personally blow your air kisses, sing you a song and be eternally grateful. Finally, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know who you'd like to hear in future on the show and what else we can do to make this unmissable for you. You can reach us at hello at don'tstopusnow.co. So here's to being a little bit more unstoppable each and every day. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.